inclined to want to know from each and every one of you, how are you? (laughs) You know, the first day on retreat, it's a powerful day. And for some of you, it's actually the first retreat day ever. It's kind of a milestone. I remember my first uh, retreat day. It felt like forever. When it was noon, I was like, really, noon? (laughs) I have um, a meditation teacher in Holland in my home country, and he said, if people complain to you about not having enough free time, just tell them to go on retreat, because that time all of a sudden feels like it's double. Right? And um, so tonight, I would like to talk about um, psychic self-defense. That's another way of saying mindfulness. And um, this is what we've been trying to do all day, to come back to this present moment again and again. And it's not easy. It really takes playing practice. I remember having sits that were in the first day feel very blissful, but then the following walk was super boring. And I was constantly checking my watch. When could I go back sitting again? We really, really reflect a lot. Our minds are constantly constructing ideas. We're measuring up, how is my practice going? Is it going well? Before we know it, these kind of reflections turn into judgments. I won't tell you the number out of embarrassment, but once my teacher suggested me to me, count how often you judge on a retreat day. It was a lot. I, I for example, judge someone's sounds of their pants. Miss, I call it, oh, there's Mr. Squishy's pants again. <laughs> the only thing I've never judged on a retreat, I think, is trees. <laughs> but then last Christmas, I was home, and my sister, she had replanted her tree back from the yard, back into her house. I even judged that tree. <laughs> So we meet a lot of what the Buddha calls hindrances in our practice. And in our Q&A, we kind of talked about one, for example, that came up that was doubt. Um, You might have felt aversive or resistant this day, and you really felt it and were aware of it. Or maybe you were restless. Or you noticed the quality of sleepiness. Please raise your hand. Who felt sleepy on this first day? <laughs> Just look around and feel the song of support. You're not alone in this, in this human, this shared human experience. And it takes courage to do this. I sat on this in this room for 
years ago for my first really long retreat. And that first day, the mind was cranky, it was sleepy, and I even counted how many times I needed to shave before I would go home. Just all these things the mind is doing, right? It's like, it's like an endless playground, Joseph Goldstein calls it. And it's really normal. It's really normal to have these thoughts, these challenging emotions, these challenging moods. And over the course, we will offer you a wide variety of ways how you can be with them or play with them. And really come and see for yourself, like Joanna was talking about yet last night. That was what actually drew me to this practice, that I could find out for myself. I wouldn't have to assume anything. The Buddha even said, check me out, check the teachings out. And what we really want to do in this practice is we want to start to see how our habits work. We really want to see the habits that are skillful and healthy and beneficial. And really know that we have those inside of us. This compassion to awaken, to be kind and compassionate. But we also really want to open up to the difficult emotions, the unskillful habits, the unhealthy habits that we all have. And eventually, over time, what will happen is we will develop a different relationship to them. It's not like they're going to go away. For example, for me, a very strong, conditioned, uh, unhealthy habit is worrying and fear. There's even there's been this long history of fear of public speaking. They say sometimes it's the number one fear in America. So is it okay to be with it? Can we acknowledge it? Can we be kind to it? And eventually, over time, it feels like these painful habits, these unhelpful, unskillful habits, they feel like trash that you've put in the right place. You don't have to pick that trash up again. It's in the right place. The mind kind of grows dispassionate about some of these mind states. It's kind of wisdom that is informing, nah. It's not if you really wanted to get away. It's more like, nah. It's okay if there's fear. And there's this knowing that it'll go away. And on this journey, we need this knowing quality of mind that we call mindfulness, awareness, or psychic self-defense. And I want to talk about what it is. And I also want to talk a little bit about some elements of it that you will recognize it on retreat. And I'd like to start by kind of sharing a definition of mindfulness that I really like by uh, Diana Winston. She describes it as paying attention to our present moment experiences. And now this is important, with openness, curiosity, and willingness to be with what is. And you might have heard teachers 
referring to mindfulness as loving awareness, where that element of kindness, curiosity, and care is present. I recently found this new term that I really like, where it's a combo of kindness and mindfulness, to be kindful. This is what I really aspire to for myself, to be kindful. And I want to share the words of a very um, wise monk who has translated a lot of the old Pali teachings. Pali is the language in which the Buddhist teachings were recorded in this tradition um, into English. And his name is Bhikkhu Bodhi. And this is how he describes wise mindfulness. In the practice of wise mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up, just as it is occurring. It's like riding the waves of events in a way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. I like that image. And the whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. And this is what we do when we practice coming home to the anchor. And this is just the first step in more instructions that will follow in the course of the retreat. But it's really helpful, as Chaz was talking about, to get familiar with your anchor, a place you can come home to. Your anchor is always happening now. You can never be too late for your anchor. It's always right here. And this mindfulness supports us from not getting swept away. by the tides of distraction. I'll I'll share a little bit of an embarrassing example from my life. (laughs) Preparing for a talk like this on mindfulness, I remembered the teachings of the Buddha and it had a great metaphor. It had in it, I thought, animals being bound with a rope to a pole but I couldn't find it online. So I Googled, I Googled, let me tell you, what did I Google? I Googled um, animals being, no. (laughs) I Googled, no, this is what I Googled. Mindfulness as a pole. (laughs) Guess what Google showed me? The first um, hit was, quote unquote, I found mindfulness on the pole. And it was about this pole dancer. And while she was doing it, you know, she found mindfulness. <laughs> and the distraction kind of came already in. I could feel my hand was on the computer. I could feel the hand going, I want to check this out. <laughs> know what I mean? But th- there was some mindfulness. I was preparing a talk on mindfulness for whatever sake. Um, but there was like, okay, nah, I won't do it. But dif- this, this, these are not the search words, right? So this is what I did after that. 
um, I continued the search, and I remember what did I? Um, and I remember animals pull mindfulness. So when I googled that, <laughs> mindfulness pull animals, I got how to practice mindfulness with your animal. <laughs> and then I got distracted, and I clicked it. <laughs> it was the cutest website. You should check it out <laughs> if you want to distract yourself. Um, the pull was just too strong. It's kind of a great metaphor when we're sitting or walking, standing in line for our food or whatever, and the mind just wanders off in these fantasies. But I did go back to the task. And eventually I found a simile that really points to how mindfulness can hold us when we move all the way around. And the Buddha um, very often talks about the six senses. You know, you're familiar with the five senses, but in in the Buddhist um, way of looking at life, I guess, psychology, the mind is also a sense, a sense door. And um, so this is the analogy. Does anyone recognize this, or is it just me? The distracting thoughts. Oh, thank you. There's just one hand that went up. One thing I love to do when um, I read or hear the words of the Buddha is to, again, kind of get a sense of that connection of how long these words have traveled to reach us here tonight, how many people were part of this. So here comes the simile. Just as if a person catching six animals of different ranges, of different habitats, were to bind them with a strong rope... (laughs) So catching a snake, bind it with a rope, a crocodile, bird, a dog, a hyena, and a monkey. Binding them all with a strong rope and then tying a knot in the middle. Not the pole, a knot. And then he would set to chase them. You get the image? And then those six animals of different ranges of different habitats would each pull toward its own range and habitat. So the snake would pull thinking, I'll go into the anthill. The crocodile will go into the water. The bird would pull and think, I'll fly up in the air. The dog would want to go into the village. And the hyena would pull thinking, I'll go into the trauma ground. And the monkey would pull thinking, I'll go into the forest. Now, when these six animals became internally exhausted, they would submit. They would surrender. They would come under the sway of whichever among them was the strongest. In the same way, when a monk, or you could also, the Buddha is talking to us as meditators, whose mindfulness immersed in the body is undeveloped, unpursued, what happens? The eye pulls towards pleasing forms, while unpleasing forms are repellent. And then the Buddha goes through all the senses. So the ear pulls towards pleasing sounds, while unpleasing sounds are repellent. The same thing with the nose and aromas, the tongue and flavors the body and pleasing tactile sensations. And the mind pulls toward pleasing ideas 
while unpleasing ideas or thoughts are repellent. This, monks, meditators, is lack of restraint. And then he goes on, he says, what is restraint? There's the case where a meditator seeing a form with the eye is not obsessed with pleasing forms, is not repelled by unpleasing forms, and remains with body mindfulness established, with immeasurable awareness. And he talks about that for all the senses. Just by being aware, we can kind of pause and decide whether we want to go into a specific habit of getting, wanting something, or not. We have that same decision when something unskillful is there or something that we don't want to deal with. We can be with it, not feed it. That's the power of this practice. And when I hear these words, psychic self-defense makes sense to me. And I got this term from a meditation teacher called Stan Kohler, and he works in East Harlem with uh, mostly guys who do martial arts and they practice Zen meditation. And the word mindfulness wasn't really doing it for them. So they came up with this term, psychic self-defense. There's a release in being aware. So I'd like to discuss a few aspects of this, what the Buddha calls immeasurable awareness of mindfulness. The first aspect is called bare attention. This aspect of awareness allows us to simply feel and receive a sensation without thinking about it, without reflecting on it. It's beyond language. And let's let's play with this a little bit. Last no, was it last night or this morning? I can't even remember. Time again, perception. We were offered three anchors. Just, if you want, see if you can feel the body right now as best as you can. Perhaps feeling the temperature, the warmness or coolness of the body right now. The word really is feeling. It's beyond language. Or feeling the body touch things, the hardness. Bear attention. Available in any moment. I invite you now to play with really feeling the body breathe. Letting it breathe by itself. 
no need for language, just this receptivity of awareness that simply feels bear attention. Inviting you now to open the sounds for just a few moments. Hearing like you'd be listening to music without lyrics. Bear attention. And this element of mindfulness can be really developed when we come home to our anchor and feel it. I like that word, to feel it. The second element of mindfulness that is really important is called clearly knowing. And this aspect of mindfulness is more active, is about knowing the content of our experience. For example, the content of our mental state. We could do this right now too. If you were to describe to yourself the mood you're in right now, what word might come up? So you bring in language. You're labeling your experience. You're clearly knowing. Even when you're not knowing how you feel, that's a feeling. There's clearly knowing. I have that one quite often. There's also wisdom in this clearly knowing aspect of awareness because it allows us to decide what do we want to do with this information? Let's say there is anger. What do we want to do? Let's say there's fear. I'd like to share an example from um, a young woman who um, was incarcerated in a juvenile detention center in the South Bronx, where I, I offer um, meditation and movement practice. And I just also, as I'm saying this, want to just bow to this dear one uh, on the right side from me, who has taught me so many things in this. I started as, as an assistant of Booker. And she'd been already doing it for a decade or so when I came in. And um, this, this woman, I, I'd like to name her Nakaya. She was in my class very often, and she would always round up the other girls on A-Hall. Let's do this. Bart's here. Come on. 
And uh, because some of them were like, no, nah, I don't want to do it today. You know, you, you feel that one too, right? Where you just don't feel like doing it. Oh, another walking period. Um, think of Nikaya. And um, she was always sharing a lot in our, in, our, um, in our meetings. We share a lot. And she was saying that she went to court the day before. And that um, she said, I tried to do the mindfulness stuff. And she said that uh, she went to court, and this time it wasn't being remandated. She really got the sentence. And she said, I felt awful. My future was on the line. I felt nervous, but most of all, fear, hardcore fear. And she said, I just kept being with fear and naming it like you taught me, and fear, fear, fear. But it didn't work. It didn't go away. And she said, even when she, would, when she came back to the hall in the detention center, she didn't feel like you know, the practice was really helping her until the other girls asked her, Nikaya, what happened? And she said, well, this, 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 this. And then she said, I realized by being so aware of this, this feeling I was having, there was more room for hearing what the judge said because previous visits I would come back on A-Hall, I had no clue what the judge said. I was totally blanked out. So that this power of really being also a bit too difficult still allows some space for other information to come in. Clearly knowing. Another aspect of awareness that I think is key, and, and when we teach the, um, um, the teens, and in other practices I teach, there's one very powerful instruction. It's one word. Pause. Every time in the midst of when there's an obsession going on, there's agitation, if you could tell yourself, pause, that could actually point to another aspect of awareness, which is to remember awareness. It's not really hard to be aware, but we forget it so often. The remembering aspect of awareness is key. And the more we practice in a formal way, the more likely we will remember it in daily living. Oh, I can be aware. And um, I'd like to share another story from my work. This is from, um, I call this, guy, this boy Carlos, who is in residential treatment and um, 14 years old. And he shares a room with his roommate. And he said that, um, he actually said the practice works, Bart, because his roommate had put on his jeans. And he said, I wanted to smack him in the, f I wanted to punch him in the face, Bart. I did the pause and said, what happened? He said, I was feeling the clenching of my fist. and I was about to hit him in the face and I paused. Didn't work. Still wanted to hit him in the face. <laughs> I had to pause again. Nope, still wanted to pause him in the face. And he was afraid and I was going to hit him. And he said, the third time, I paused. And out of nowhere, the thought came, I'm going to get in trouble. Let me go to my staff. And he just left, left the room. Pause. Just this room that awareness will provide when we're there. Talking about psychic self-defense. So mindfulness really works as a protection. 
That's how I like to see it. And there's a, a, a very uh, famous sutta, a teaching on the Buddha, it's called the Bamboo Acrobat. Some of you might know it. And uh, I'd like to share it with you. So here again is the Buddha addressing the monks. He goes, once upon a time, monks, a bamboo acrobat, setting himself up upon his bamboo pole, addressed his assistant, and she's a tough cookie, and I'm going to just call her Medaka because I can't say the whole name. Uh, addressed his assistant Medaka, come you, my dear Medaka, and climbing up the bamboo pole, stand upon my shoulders. Okay, master, the assistant replied to the bamboo acrobat, and climbing upon the bamboo pole, she stood on the master's shoulders. So then the bamboo acrobat said to his assistant, Medaka, you look after me, dear, and I will look after you. Thus, with us looking after one another, guarding one another, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. This being said, the assistant Madaka said to the bamboo acrobat, That will not do at all, Master. You look after yourself, Master, and I will look after myself. Thus, with each of us looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. That's what the Buddha said. And he said, that's the right way to do it. And then he went on, he said, just like the assistant said to her master, I will look after myself, so should you monks practice the establishment of mindfulness. But then he went on. He also said, you should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. So protecting oneself, one protects others. By protecting others, one protects oneself. And then he went on, he says, so how does one look after others? By first looking after oneself. And he says, by practicing mindfulness, by developing it, and doing it a lot. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others. And here, these hard qualities come into place. By patience, non-harming, loving-kindness, and by caring for others. In this way, protecting oneself, one protects others. And protecting others, one protects oneself. I really like how it really, the responsibilities is first our own practice by guarding the six senses, the animals that want to go around, we also protect others. And then following that, when we protect others, we, it comes back again. And the last one is really like the five precepts, right, that we talked about last night. We protect others, but we get their protection right back. The last element, so there's bare attention, clearly knowing, this aspect of remembering. The last aspect of awareness that I think is crucial, is key, 
is that component of kindness. Can you meet your experience with kindness, curiosity, and care? It's kind of like you have a relaxed attitude that is kind of like receiving and allowing the experience as it is right now. Can you do it, for example, right now? You might feel tired, hungry. I'd like to kind of come to an end pretty soon and just sharing some some ways that I inspire myself sometimes in this. And um, I'd like to start by sharing this very famous um, poem by Rumi, The Guest House. You, you've probably all heard of it. This human being is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So what do we do when sleepiness knocks on our door? Frustration, shame, judgments. As a young father, we have a three-year-old. I really like an image that Thich Nhat Hanh uses to be with anger. He talks about this image of a young parent holding a newborn baby crying, upset. What would it be like if we could bring that attitude to a moment of frustration, of being sick and tired of it all, but going, going like, This is what sick and tired of it all feels like. And you hold it. So we really encourage you to kind of keep going, but with kindness, curiosity, and care. And perhaps call on to something that inspires you or encourages you sometimes. This is from Beyonce. And it's, it works for me. I know I'm stronger in the songs than I really am. Sometimes I need to hear it myself. We all need to hear these empowering songs to remind us. And again, this is also like a refuge in people that have the same aspiration. Community spiritual friendship. 
And I'd just like to close with another um, story and kind of a poetic answer that really inspires me. Um, Her name is Nadine Stair. And when she answered this question, she was 85 years old, living in Louisville, Kentucky. And she was asked, how would you have lived your life differently if you had a chance to do it again? And these poetic words are her response. If I had to, if I had my life to live over again, I dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I'd limber up. I'd be sillier than I've been on this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. (laughs) Yeah. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but fewer imaginary ones. You feel that one? You see, I'm one of those people who was sensible and sane, hour after hour, day after day. And oh, I had my moments. If I had to do it over again, I'd have more of those. In fact, I try to have nothing else, just moments. Oh. One after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never goes anywhere, I don't know why this is coming up, without a thermometer. <laughs> That's not even the weirdest thing. <laughs> a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I could do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had to live my life over, I'd start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way longer in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. Nadine's there. Mm -mm. So the invitation again and again, is to come home. You're never too late for the present moment. If I'm ever going to write a book, that's going to be the title. (laughs) You're never, ever too late for the present moment. It's always right here if we remember it. And then when we do remember it, can it be with this attitude of kindness, curiosity, and care. So just taking a moment to come home again.
you're never too late for the present moment. Life only happens now. We invite you to meet it kindful. Thank you for your practice, for your listening. 